Welcome to Speak Up and Stay Alive Radio with author, speaker, and your host, Pat Rulo, serving you a generous helping of everything you need to know to help you and your loved ones stay safe during any doctor or hospital visit. The program is not intended to replace medical advice from a licensed professional, but rather to encourage you to become a well-informed participant in your health and well-being. And now, your host, Pat Rulo. Hello and welcome. I'm Pat Rulo, the voice for patient safety, where each week we delve into little-known healthcare and hospital hazards, as well as other fringe topics that affect your health and well-being. I'm so happy you've taken the time to join me, and today I have lots to share with you. So, let's dig right in, shall we? Well, here's a few questions for today. Are you struggling to care for an elderly parent or relative, hold down a job and raise a family? Have you been searching for real-world practical answers on how to work with siblings, balance your time, and have difficult conversations with your parents? Well, if you have, you've come to the right place because today I have quite the expert to help us. She is Liz O'Donnell, founder of WorkingDaughter.com a community for women balancing elder care, career, kids, and life. A longtime marketing executive, Liz turned her attention to helping working daughters balance elder care and career after caring for her two parents. Liz's new book, Working Daughter, A Guide to Caring for Your Aging Parents While Earning a Living, will be available in August of this year, 2019. A recognized expert on balancing life and career, She has written about the challenges of working daughters in numerous publications, including The Atlantic, Forbes, Time, USA, WBUR, and PBS, Next Avenue. Her first book, titled Mogul, Mom, and Maid, The Balancing Act of the Modern Woman, looked at the impact of women's personal lives on their careers. And her message resonates with me especially because, as most of you know, I spent 10 years caring for my mom had to give up my insurance license. I lost my insurance company because I didn't have 40 hours to devote to continuing education because my mom was in intensive care for four months. I lost my identity, my sanity, and I learned how to survive just barely. So personally, I'm thrilled to connect with her. So let's find out what we need to know. Welcome to the network, Liz. Thank you so much. And you know, the working title of my book was How to Maintain Your Career, Your Marriage, and Your Sanity. Not sure that I did, but I wrote about it. <laughs> I'm not sure that I did either, but uh, <laughs> here we are today, right? <laughs> exactly. Still standing. Exactly. We are. Yes, we are. And, uh, you know, taking crazy and hopefully helping others to avoid some of the pitfalls that we've fallen into, I'm sure. Well, before we really dig in, I want to share with our listeners how I found out about you, my friend and author and podcaster, Jana Panaritas. She hosts an amazing show about caregiving called the AgeWise Podcast. And most of you know that that airs on our very own Speak Up Talk radio. And each week she sends me your most recent episode and we air it on the network. And each week I tune in. Well, when I heard her conversation with you, Liz, I reached out to Jana and said, I don't want to poach a guest. I've never done that before, but would it be all right with you if I shared Liz with my listeners too? And she obviously graciously agreed. So here we are today. So today I would like to concentrate on my specialty and that is hospital stays with the focus on this question. What do we do 
when an elderly parent is hospitalized? You know, you get that phone call. First of all, do we drop everything and go, or do we not? Help us with that. The instinct is definitely drop everything and go, and I think for a number of reasons. You get that phone call, and typically the heart starts to race, the pulse quickens, and it's sort of like a fight-or-flight feeling. I think the other thing, especially for women but also for men, is, well, that's what a good daughter would do, right? That's what a good son would do. I'm going to rush to the hospital and be there. But what I advocate for is to take a moment and breathe and really figure out whether or not you do need to be there or you want to be there. Because oftentimes we have a million other commitments, and it's not always necessary. Sometimes it is, but it's not always necessary to let everything else crumble while we rush to the hospital. And why? It's because at the hospital, our parent is going to be in professional care. So I think it's okay to stop for a minute and say, do I need to be there right now? Are there ways to be involved in the decisions and the activity? remotely, on the phone, via fax, whatever it might be. Can I send somebody in my place? And do I need just a little while to clean things up around here, make sure the kids are getting picked up, you know, from the bus, or um, make sure that work understands that I might be not that, might not be back for the next two days, so what do I need to get in place? You're right. That first tendency is to say, nothing else matters, let me just run, and then everything else crumbles behind you. So just to let folks know that it is okay just to stop for a minute and take a breath and figure figure things out, right? And the other thing is hospital uh, workers, for the most part, medical professionals, are pretty upfront with you if you say, do I need to be there? Mm-hmm. Is this a goodbye moment or a critical moment? They'll tell you, you better come now. Mm-hmm. So it's okay to ask that question too. And if that's the answer, then yeah, you're probably going to choose to run over there. But if that's not the answer, You might be playing, I mean, look at you, four months in ICU. You could be playing a long game here. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And that is a genius question. Is this a critical moment? I guess I never thought of that. Everything seemed critical to me at the time. Oh, yeah. Yep. Well, now, let's talk about what we should bring to the hospital. Let's say that, you know, it is time for us to head over to the hospital to be with a parent. What should we bring both for our parent and, I don't think people think about themselves, but what should we also bring for ourselves? I think the most important thing is the paper pack. Um, And when I was going through caregiving, I had a copy in the glove compartment in my car, a copy at my desk at work, and a copy at home. And in that pack were my parents' health insurance cards, um, a copy of my health care, you know, the the paperwork that showed that I was their health care proxy, a copy of their advanced directive. So my father had filled out in Massachusetts, it's called the most, I can't think of what what it's stand for right now, but it's basically the form that takes you in great detail through what kind of interventions someone may or may not want as their health progresses. Um, a copy of the power of attorney. Maybe you don't need it at the hospital, but it can't hurt to have it on on hand. And then a list of their current medication. I think that's the critical stuff to have because the doctors are going to ask you. And even if your parents are in the same healthcare network, they've been to that hospital before, their primaries in that network, It seems to me, and I don't know what your experience is in that, but for some reason, medical information does not seem to travel digitally in the medical world, right? So you're going to be asked the same things over and over. Um, So it's great to have a paper copy. And then there's the comfort stuff. So if your parent is admitted and they're going to stay, what's going to make them feel better? What strikes me is that I have children and my son had his appendicitis out when he was younger. 
the experience of a child being at the hospital and the way that the medical staff makes room for their parents to be there and comfort them is so vastly different than when it's your parents who's in the hospital and the hospital doesn't seem to think about the fact that they too could be scared or maybe need some comfort. So I think it's really on the adult child to think, what's going to make my parents stay more comfortable? Hospitals can be very scary. They can be very disorienting. So hearing aids, dentures, glasses, what are the things that are going to make them feel as normal and human as possible? And then the extras, you know, do they want a robe? Do they want their, well, they probably can't have their slippers because of the uh, fall risk, but do they have a special religious statue that they want or prayer books or crossword puzzles? Well, what are those things that just going to make it feel a little less institutional? Yes, you mentioned the uh, the continuity of care with the medical records that don't necessarily travel well, even within the same systems. I'm actually doing a whole segment on EMRs, the electronic medical records, this week on my show. So it, you almost need two purses. I know I did with my mom. I had all her stuff in, in hers and all of mine in mine. And, and I even tell people to prepack a hospital bag and just have it stashed in your closet. So when you do get that call, that's just one less thing that you have to worry about. Everything's already ready to roll. You just pull it out, and, and there it is. That way you can think in a rational moment. Yeah, and you know what always struck me, too, is hospital gift shops or shops in the hospital, they're not designed for the caregiver who's going to come in and say, oh, I forgot a toothbrush, or oh, my parent needs some reading glasses. <laughs> they're designed for the visitor who's going to come and bring flowers. Mm-hmm. So they're not. I, I used to think, well, I'll just run downstairs to the gift shop and get my toiletries, but they're not there. So for me, I always kept a stash bag, too, because, you know, over the years I had a lot of unfortunate, you know, emergencies. One thing is a sweater. I find hospitals are very, very cold, um, especially emergency rooms can be freezing. I don't know why. Um, and then because I was always trying to balance my job and my caregiving crises, I was always prepared to work. So I always had a laptop and a hotspot, you know, like a MiFi or something, I could get Wi-Fi, not have to rely on the hospital, you know, general Wi-Fi. Any work that I might need to get done, I always tried to keep track of what could be done because there's so much sitting around and waiting in the hospital. I found if I could fill that time with work, I'd be less stressed later about what I missed. And then, like I said, that basic toiletry kit and chargers. I kept chargers everywhere, so I always had a phone. And then the other thing is I find hospitals are so dehydrating as well, especially for visitors. So a big fat water bottle, you know, the big plastic water bottle, and something to read or, um, you know, I might not want to work. I might want to look at People magazine. Absolutely. So comfort items not only for the patient but for yourself as well. Yeah. Comfort and productivity. There you go. (laughs) Yes. Oh, my, so much. Now, you say that you have three main jobs while in the hospital with your parent. One is to advocate, one is to listen, and one is to support. So let's talk briefly about each one of those. Well, I think advocacy is the most important role we play for our parents because, back to what we're saying, hospitals can be disorienting. They can be um, institutional, overwhelming, scary. And if our parents are elderly, if they have dementia, if they're not in a position to really speak for themselves or to be taking in everything that's happening, I think it's really important that we know our role is not to be nice. And I'm not saying it's to be the opposite of nice either, but we have a job when we're there, and that job is to be the best advocate for our parents. I always tell working daughters that we need to do our best to meet the medical professionals as equals. 
So absolutely, they're the experts when it comes to the medical care that they're going to be giving and recommendations. But we are the experts on our parents. We know our parents. We know what their baseline was. We know what their wishes are, what their lifestyle choices are. So it's okay to meet that medical professional as an expert. Let the medical professional make the, you know, make the call in their realm, the medical realm. But also expect and insist that they take into consideration where your expertise is, which is knowing what's best for the patient from a lifestyle perspective. And the example that I use is my dad was um, exhibiting some strange behavior. He didn't have a primary care at the time. Primary care was in trans, you know, they were having a new one. So the, we got the advice, take him to the ER. From there, he'll go to a Jerry psych place and they'll evaluate him. Well, that was a disaster. And part of it was a recent show you talked about. Um, we didn't know at the time he had dementia. They gave him an anti-psych drug that was so powerful for an 84-year-old, you know, body and dementia. Anyway, it rendered him completely helpless and um, unable to talk, unable to walk. So he goes to the Jerry Psych Ward, and I come in, and I keep telling everybody in the staff, this is not his baseline. This is not his baseline. Because what they saw was this 80-something-year-old man who was mumbling, didn't know who he was, couldn't talk. But what I had dropped off at the hospital was an ambulatory, intelligent man. And so my job as advocate was to make sure that they understood the man that came through their doors who was admitted was not the man I knew. And I just kept over and over until finally one of the nurses said, you know, you keep telling us this. And I said, and I will continue until you hear me. Wow, that's powerful just to think in those terms, because I think so many people feel frightened to advocate because, of, oh, I don't know anything about medicine. I'm not a doctor. We immediately feel kind of subservient. But as you're saying, we are the experts when it comes to our parents. No one has that on us. So um, excellent advice. Thank you. And I mean, I would say, you know, it always helps to do it with a smile. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and a little bit, a little dose of sugar. Yep. Um, but don't be afraid if you need to go a little salty, right? You got it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you do. You have to be polite and until you reach a point where you don't. I mean, if keep insisting and asking nicely and you don't get the help that you need, well, then there were times I jumped up and down and then they knew that I meant business. So Absolutely. you've got to figure out when is right and when isn't. All right. Then you say listen. Well, there is, I mean, again, back to the overwhelming, I'll probably use that word 20 times in the few minutes we've been talking, but there's so much going on in a hospital. And there's so much moving information. You know, doctors are doing their best to assess the situation and they're, they're doing if then, right? They're trying this and then trying that and making changes all the time. So I think it's really important that we are, we play that role of the extra set of ears. And we, I, I take physical notes. I either take out my iPhone and type into the notes section or I have a, you know, paper and pen notebook. Um, and I write down everything that I hear here. Mm -hmm. And then I ask questions. Um, you know, as appropriate. But I always repeat back what I heard too. And I always ask the medical professionals, can you give me a minute and let me repeat this in my own words mm -hmm. and then tell me if it's right or not? Mm -hmm. Because if I just start to say, so what I heard was, and they immediately jump in and repeat it, doesn't necessarily mean that I'm taking it in. So I always say, can you give me a minute to play this back in my own words so I know that I understood what you said to me? Ooh, I love that. And they will. They will. Oh, yeah. I mean, and that's the other thing as far as advocacy, too, is I think we should go in there assuming best intent, assuming mm -hmm. that everybody in there is doing the best job possible. They want to do the right thing by your parents. You know, sometimes you need to, like I said, be a little forceful. Um, but for the most part, 
they're all just busy and trying to do the best thing. Mm-hmm. So they will. They will work with you. Right. And the next is support. And, you know, just as we're saying this, not only to support the patient, but I also think that the nursing staff, especially if you are there with your parent and help, basically you're supporting them at the same time. I mean, if you're asking intelligent questions, making sure that the right things happen at the right time, that's a bit of support for the nursing staff as well. That's a great point. Yeah. I mean, I think nurses are the most amazing people on the planet having spent way too much time in hospitals and they're frontline and they're making big decisions and they're hands-on and they are incredibly busy so yeah i think as much as you can play that role of partner with them as opposed to you know interfering with what they're trying to do is wonderful the last um extended hospital stay for family member i had um, the IV kept beeping, you know, the lines kept getting caught. And eventually, rather than me call the call, you know, hitting the call button every time, the nurse taught me how to change, you know, how to fix it. And, you know, we were able to partner together as opposed to me constantly hitting the call button and wondering why they weren't coming soon enough. And you can really work together with them. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's when they feel that they've got um, a partner in you because they probably shouldn't be allowing you to do that. But if they realize, <laughs> you know, but if they realize that you are, and I call it an e-patient, educated, empowered, and eager to be a part of the process, then they include you as part of the team as well. So mm-hmm. good mm-hmm. advice. Exactly. Thank you. Thank you. Now I want to ask the million-dollar question is, how do you do this and handle your job? Because I think I failed at that. Well, I'm sure I failed at that too, right? Those who can't write about it or teach or whatever the saying <laughs> goes. <laughs> but like we said, we're still standing and I'm actually still employed. So. Um, very carefully is the answer. It's really, really challenging, but I'm I'm also full of hope that it can be done. And part of it is taking that, creating that space that we talked about when the call does come in and giving it a moment to say, is this a run out the door, pants on fire moment, or is this a take a moment and get everything in order moment? Um, because there, you know, there are two kinds of calls that we get. So if it is the run out the door, pants on fire situation, then don't apologize. Run out the door, pants on fire, and go do what you need to do, and then you follow up. You know, no apology. I don't think we should ever feel guilty for putting our family first, just like I don't think we should ever feel guilty for earning a living. Those are two really important things that we have to do at the same time. So if it is a take a moment situation, then, you know, I I think no guilt about the fact that you're not rushing to the hospital. Take that time to figure out what are the deadlines, What's open-ended at work? Who are the people who can best fill in for you? What information are they going to need? And then tell the boss, the clients, the coworkers, I'm going. I don't know what I'm going to face. Here's when you'll hear from me again, and I'll let you know the next step. But here are the passwords. Here are the documents. Here are the calls that need to be covered. You know, as much as you can. And the other thing I, I always say is let your coworkers and your managers know, too, I think I'm all here. I think I can handle this. But it's probably best for all of us involved if you back me up, if you check my work, mm-hmm. if you, you know, don't take it at face value that I've got everything covered. I'm doing my best to have everything covered, but I might forget something here. I like that. I mean, that's admitting a little vulnerability, which we tend not to uh, do so readily so or easily. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a scary thing to admit vulnerability at work, I think, especially I think of a certain generation. So I'm 50. You know, I think millennials are, and I'm overgeneralizing, but I think, you know, younger generations are more comfortable mixing work and life. Mm -hmm. And 
I was raised to do. It was, you know, you come to work, you're all professional, and you, you know, you don't mention that you have a home life. Yes. So I, I think it's a little scary for some of us to do. But you end up getting in trouble if you don't. Mm-hmm. You know, no. you try to cover and keep it all together, and <laughs> you know, I think vulnerability can be a really powerful tool. There you go. Now, you mentioned managing home life. Let's talk about that for a bit because you still leave a spouse and children and pets. Now, my kids were grown when this happened to my mom and me, but, you know, I still did have a husband and I had 13 cats who rescued me and they surely couldn't leave them um, unfed that eat three and four times a day. So, yeah, let's talk about that. How do you handle the group back at home? Well, I think the most important thing is to think about the group back at home before there is a crisis. And, you know, great advice that we always hear and give in the caregiving realm, right, is that we should plan ahead and nobody wants to do it. But as much as you can run through that checklist of what are my responsibilities in life before it happens, the more likely you are to stop and think about that. So you have a spouse, um, you know, they are probably more likely to support you and be on board and cover for you if you partner with them and say, hey, my parents are sick and here's what I want to do. I want to sleep over tonight at the hospital. You know, can we work with this? As opposed to, oh, I didn't come home last night because of course my parents come first. You know, I think it's it's just it's a tiny little courtesy that can go a long way in building that partnership. You know, in the in the ideal world we like to think, well everybody's partner or spouse would just do anything to support family. Well sometimes, you know, they might feel like you're putting your parents first too much or so you know, the reality is not everything's perfect. So the more you can enlist them in what you're thinking and ask for their support as opposed to assume their support, just a little courtesy that I think can go a long way. Um and then when it comes to your pets and your children, what is it that they they need? Do they need to be fed? Do they need to be let out and walked? Do they need to be picked up from the bus? Who can you call to arrange that? Do you have a key hidden? Do you have um, a release form at school for your kids to be picked up by a neighbor or a sister-in-law or whoever it might be? Um, you know, like I said, do you have the key hidden under the, the rock or whatever so they can get in and, and somebody can get in and walk your pets or feed your cats or pet your cats or whatever might need to be done? Um, these little things I think are really important to think about before we need to think about them. Sounds like a lot of what we're talking about today is forethought and pre-planning. Ideally, it is. And, you know, it doesn't require a lot of action. It really just requires mm-hmm. a lot of, if there were an emergency, yes. how would my cats be handled? How would my children be handled? How would my, you know, job be handled? Mm-hmm. Are the windows shut and is it going to rain, right? <laughs> I mean, whatever it might be. <laughs> All right. So we've talked about some very specifics, your job and your family and your pets. What about the rest of your life? Well, so your parents in the hospital and anything could happen, right? So we really have to do our best to plan um, as short and long-term as we can at the same time. You know, short-term, it's an acute situation, your parents in the hospital, so what meetings are you going to miss? What volunteer opportunities are you not showing up for? And to the best of your ability to send out a text, an email, a call, or whatever to let people know I'm not going to show up. If you forget to do that and you don't show up, in most situations, people are going to be forgiving. But if you can have the foresight to think about that, like, hey, an emergency won't be there, we'll be in touch later, it's a huge courtesy that I think just really helps your own, um, you know, image, right, and reputation and um, people's willingness to support you. And that's short term. And then start to think about, okay, what does this look like long term? 
So this, you know, is this hospitalization a hospitalization that's signaling things are really going to change for my parents? They're not going to be independent anymore. They're going into a rehab or they're going into a nursing home. And giving yourself time to really think about how is that going to impact my life? I think one of the hardest things we hear from caregivers, and it sounds like you experienced it personally, is the life we were planning gets really disrupted. And we can spend time in this scenario of my life just got disrupted, my life just got put on hold, my life no longer exists. But the reality is the, the life we wake up to every morning is the life that we have, so how can we make it best work? I think I'm a big fan of pity parties as long as you set a timer on them, right? So it's okay to say I was, you know, I just got this new volunteer opportunity or I was just elected to this new board and now this hospitalization is signaling a big change in my parents' life and therefore in my life. Where, what was me that's really stuck? And then, okay, so what now? What? I had my pity party. I ate my Oreos or whatever you do to make yourself <laughs> feel better. Um, okay, now what am I going to do? I guess I have to put my volunteer situation on hold. Not the end of the world. I can come back to it another time. Or whatever it might be that needs to shift in our life. But I say, let yourself grieve what you have to give up or choose to give up, to, you know, to support your caregiving role. And then, so what now? What? How can you make it work? And you never know where this is going to lead, what's around the corner, or why this happened. And that's what I think is crucial is to, anytime something strange or weird happens, I like to stop for a moment and think, all right, what does this mean? What am I supposed to do with it? What's the point of that? And as you say, you could have a pity party for a while, but eventually you've got to get rid of that because there really is a message or, or a purpose in everything that happens to us, I think, if we just uh, take the time to try to find that. I mean, I like to think so as well, because the alternative is pretty lousy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, Liz, here's something that affected me, and I'm just coming out of it now. After stopping and dropping everything to care for my mom, and this was a full decade, after she passed away, I thought I would feel relief, which I kind of did, but mostly I felt like who am I? You know, what is my role and what is my purpose without her? And it sincerely took me three years just to come out of it. I guess I was so invested in her and the entire process that I felt like I was no longer me. Have you heard this from others? And, you know, where do we go from there? I hear it all the time. Absolutely. And it makes perfect sense. We put so much of our, you know, our being into caring for other people. I think as caregivers, there's something, um, you know, inherent in us that um, focuses on other people, that cares for other people. Um, and then what? And then what has been your identity for so long, whether you chose it or didn't or chose it consciously or not, is gone. And and where do you go from here? It's su such a common experience. And I think a couple of things help to sort of move into the next phase and figure out your identity, although I think it's perfectly okay to take some time to figure out what that is. You don't have to, you know, the day after the funeral, no. isn't be expected, you know, <laughs> that you're going to say, okay, now I know what I'm going to do. But I think one is if we can be proactive while we're caring for someone to think about what happens when caregiving ends, which can feel really icky, quite frankly, right, to say, here you are caring for somebody who's vulnerable, and you're starting to think about... Yeah what it's going to be like when they're gone, that feels really uncomfortable. But I actually think it's really healthy because it allows us then 
to put some things in place for post-caregiving. So whether that's, you know, staying networked so that we can return to our careers or staying active so that, you know, we don't go from caregiving to needing a caregiver. We're, you know, semi-healthy on the other side, whatever it might be. Uh, I think it's important to think through, okay, what's important in my life? What are some of the things I might like to do? What are some of the small things I can do now to move in that direction? Post-caregiving, you might decide that's not the direction you want to take, but I think plans are always a good way to move forward, even if they move you forward in a way of saying, oh, I don't want to follow that plan. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the other thing is caregiving, as difficult as it can be, and there are some really, really bad moments and days, as I know you know, there's some pretty amazing experiences that come out of it and some amazing skills that we develop. And for people like you and me, we, we turn our attention to helping other caregivers because we've become so immersed in this experience. But if that's not the path that you're going to take, you all of a sudden have learned all of these things. You have all of these skills and all of these experiences. And then what do you do with them? All of a sudden, you know, you put them on the shelf and you're facing this world and you don't know what to do with it. I think if we can look at what are the skills that we developed and really be proud of them and pump ourselves up, whether that's, you know, writing a new resume or looking in the mirror and reminding yourself that you're pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. Look what you've just done. Mm-hmm. I and mean, we have advocacy skills, negotiation skills, stamina, physical strength, you know, medical knowledge, whatever it might be, and be really proud of that and take a moment to really package that in our own minds. Then I think that can help propel us forward too to say, okay, it wasn't three years of something that doesn't relate at all to my life. Mm-hmm. It was three years of really developing me in a way. And now how can I, how can I leverage that? Oh, absolutely. That's beautiful. You know, and, and what could be more wonderful and glorious, really, than caring for another human life and making their life better? I can't, I mean, you can work all day long at a job, but this is really an opportunity to give back and to help somebody and be there for them. And I can't imagine anything any more special. And as you said, there's a lot of rotten moments, but boy, at the end of the day, there's no better feeling than to say, hey, you know, I, I spent this time with my mom and, you know, mm-hmm. look at the bond we that that we built. And, you know, there's just so much beauty surrounding it. So thank you for suggesting that and saying that. Well, I don't know if I came to that, you know, from an enlightened standpoint or a pure survival standpoint. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> but, you know, when I came through my caregiving experiences, I had lost influence at work. I had lost revenue, you know, and yes. and. and salary and earning potential and and I had to sort of sort it all out for myself okay so your career is not at all what you thought it would be but what did you gain because I for the longest time I looked at caregiving as something that took from me Mm -hmm. but it actually can really give to you so it you know it sounds enlightened after the fact but it was purely practical way to go oh my god where am I now (laughs) Ah, oh, thank you for that. We are so on the same page. I thought, oh my gosh, how am I? Get, who who am I now? Maybe I need to dye my hair blonde and call myself Roxanne or something. I don't know who the heck Holy. I was. <laughs> my husband didn't like that idea, so I had to figure it out myself. The name or the hair color? Uh, probably both. Oh, both. <laughs> oh my gosh, so much to talk about. Is there anything else though surrounding this topic that we missed or that you think we should be talking about today? I, I just think, no, I think I just reiterate, I, you know, as much as we can try to create space so that we react to these moments, 
the phone calls and the, you know, the quickening of the pulse as possible and that we allow ourselves to decide I should be there or I shouldn't as opposed to this is what other people think I should be doing, then I think we're going to make the best decisions for ourselves and our parents. Excellent, excellent. And I see that you are doing a podcast to help further this message. Tell us a little about that if you can. Sure. It's a 10-episode um, series that will be out, can I just say, soon. Yes. Um, and um, it's exploring a few topics that didn't necessarily fit into my new book or on the website, um, but things like when you're caring for an LGBTQ adult, you know, what are the unique situations? Um, how do we best um, act as employees? To paid caregivers and you know what are some of the scenarios that paid caregivers face and how can we best employ them um, you know how can companies shift their benefit packages so that caregivers actually take advantage of them so diving into a few topics that aren't necessarily things we talk about every day at Working Daughter but I think they're topics that are really important to look at. I'm looking forward to that keep us posted about that and I can sh- I will. share with everyone. All right. So as we begin to wrap up, where can folks go to learn more about you, purchase your books, uh, sign up for your newsletter? Um, They can do all of that from workingdaughter.com. So I appreciate that. And of course, the book is available on Amazon. It officially comes out August 8th, but it's available now. And you can find the newsletter, the book, Facebook community, all through workingdaughter.com. All right, so the title of this new book coming out August 8th is Working Daughter, A Guide to Caring for Your Aging Parents While Earning a Living by Liz O'Donnell, and the uh, website is workingdaughter.com. Well, my friend, this has been an exciting conversation with you. I tell we have a lot in common and a lot more to talk about. Before we head out, any final words you'd like to leave us with? I just want to say thank you for what you're doing. I think your podcast such an important topic that I hadn't seen addressed before. So thank you. Oh, well, thank you very much. Liz O'Donnell, thank you so much for being here with us today. And maybe we'll do more in the future. Hope so. Hi, I'm Jana Panaritas, host of the AgeWise podcast and a caregiver for my aging mom. Do you mind telling us how old you are, Mom? I do mind. I would say forget it. Yep, that's my mom. Many of the guests on my show are caregivers who sometimes get into arguments with their loved ones. That's why it's important to talk with each other about what you're feeling. Mom and I do this a lot, but we didn't used to because after my father died, she was so devastated by her loss, she could barely speak. The biggest shock of my life was when he died. Listeners have told me they appreciate hearing from caregivers on the show because it helps them to know they're not alone. Join me each week at speakuptalkradio.com for caregiving stories that will help you feel less alone. To learn more about the show, visit agewise.com. That's A-G-E-W-Y-Z.com. Are you enjoying your life right now, Mom? Very much. I want to live forever. (laughs) Hi there. I'm Gina Murphy-Darling, the voice of Mrs. Green on the airwaves. Mrs. Green's World is a global movement of ideas and actions made up of people who care about their own health and the health of this planet. If you're interested in things like clean water, clean air, clean oceans, or would like to know more about just what it means to live a sustainable life, you will love to hear what our guests from all over the world have to say. 
please visit our website at mrsgreensworld.com to learn more and to become a part of our world. Recently, I was asked to narrate and produce the audiobook version of a book titled Death by 5G, an advanced guide to population reduction techniques. So what is 5G? 5G, which stands for fifth generation, is an upcoming standard for mobile telecommunications service that promises to be significantly faster than today's 4G. Well, the author of this book has a lot more to say about it. Here's a bit from their page on Amazon. They say, this new technology will affect living human beings to the core of their health. This guide will tell you all the ways the government and powers that be will be using fifth generation signals to blast through your home devices to levels you could never imagine. Dangers involving 5G technology are serious and varied. Learn how to protect yourself and the people you love. So to find out more and to get your Kindle version or the audiobook version, just visit Amazon.com and type in the title of the book, which is Death by 5G. The number 5, the letter G. And if you or someone you know would like to turn their book into an audiobook, I can do that for you. Just email me at pat at speakupandstayalive.com or call me 440-725-5462. Well, there you have it. Lots to think about and plenty to share with others. And to do so, simply head over to the website, speakupandstayalive.com, where you can listen to today's show again and hear previous episodes, all under the Radio Archives button. And while you're there, visit the shop page to get a copy of the life-saving book, Speak Up and Stay Alive, Your Hospital Survival Guide. And if you just need more of me, invite me to speak to your group, club, church, business, or hospital. My presentations are fun, fast-paced, informative, and life-saving. Visit speakupandstayalive.com for more information. Email me at pat at speakupandstayalive.com or call me and leave a message on the radio studio line, 440-725-5462. That is 440-725-5462. Well, that is it for today. Until next time, I hope you have a healthy and a happy week. I am Pat Rulo, and I am the voice for informed choice.